Welcome to Delivering More Together, the podcast brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, VHA Innovation Ecosystem. I'm Bryn Cole. Now, if your first thought is that a podcast hosted by the federal government sounds like a total snooze fest, I challenge you to stay for a listen and let us change your mind. Here, we'll open your eyes, well, ears, to the groundbreaking innovation underway at VHA and how through innovation and collaboration, VHA is exceeding expectations, restoring hope, and building trust within the veteran community. Today's episode features an interview with Dr. Amanda Purnell and Louise Sowinson from MIT. They discuss how VA and MIT are using data, machine learning, and artificial intelligence to deliver empathic medicine. Listeners, be warned, the audio can be a bit rough at times. But we hope you enjoy this great discussion on how advanced technologies can be leveraged to solve veterans' challenges. I'm, I'm Blake Henderson, director of the Diffusion of Excellence program, uh, here today with a, a couple of innovators, uh, one from the VA, another from one of our, our partners at MIT. Uh, we're excited to learn about how they're using data uh, to improve existing best practices. Um, so. By all means, Amanda, if you can introduce yourself uh, whenever you're you're ready. Hi, I am Amanda Purnell. I am a psychologist by training, and I'm interested in data and how we use data to do a better job of connecting people. So I got involved with this project actually because of my experience and connections with whole health and my life, my story, as well as uh, my relationship with people in the Office of Mental Health and Suicide Prevention and another project called Make the Connection. Perfect. All right, Um, Louise, when you're ready, please introduce yourself. Thank you, Blake. Thank you so much to your audience. My name is Louis Soengsen. I'm a venture builder and researcher at MIT. I've built medical devices uh, companies around healthcare for the last 15 years, both in the US and internationally. And right now at MIT, we're working on launching a new set of initiatives around artificial intelligence in healthcare, uh, one of which is very exciting to us uh, called AI-enabled empathic medicine. We believe that the future of medicine, uh, specifically concerning artificial intelligence and the use of of tools in artificial intelligence, is not only or should not only be directed to, you know, try to cure cancer or give better diagnoses, uh, but rather to preserve and reinforce the human touch and connection between patients and providers and caregivers. So we are using a variety of different tools, uh, state of the art in, in the field of artificial intelligence to really bring that connection closer. We're super excited to be working uh, with the VA uh, on, on, on the initial uh, testings of these, these types of efforts, uh, specifically with, with the team at the My Life, My Story program with the likes of Thor Ringler, as well as the Make the Connection uh, program with um, 
Kobe and Red. Um, happy to be here. Awesome. Um, so let's, I think if I'd like to really kind of understand more about your, each of your backgrounds and kind of how, how you kind of got here. So Amanda, if you don't mind, you know, you're one of our, our innovation fellows within the innovation ecosystem, um, you know, but you're also a clinician. Could you talk a little bit maybe about, um, you know, your, your trajectory in recent years and maybe kind of what brought you to this collaboration um, with, with MIT? Yeah. So as I said earlier, I'm a counseling psychologist by training and my work actually has always been in preventive medicine and doing trainings in human connection, how people uh, do a good job of listening and gathering the pertinent details from another person's story, engaging them and helping to build that connection. So that's a primary point of my clinical training. How do we engage people in behavior change? And as I did a lot of that training and the clinical work I do is actually within the whole health program. So I've been teaching mindfulness groups for, I feel old when I say it, but 20 years now. <laughs> and it's work that I really love. And it's become clear to me that it's these connections that are so important. And I wanted to figure out how to help more and more people learn how to make those connections and also feel engaged and enthusiastic about the work they're doing through relationships. Now, the power of stories is so powerful in connecting people to other people and then in wanting to be feel uh, ready to do the next thing in your life, whatever that is, uh, everybody's a little bit different. So I got involved in innovation because I loved inspiring other people and connecting with other people about things that they were passionate about and trying to help uh, clear away the barriers. <laughs> I got involved in data because it became increasingly clear to me that data was like this foreign world that people felt deeply intimidated by. So data is a short word, <laughs> but for whatever reason, people think of it as if it has four syllables. <laughs> it has four letters. And I think if we can demystify what data and data analysis can do, uh, we would have more people interested and we could use data to better leverage the things that are important to people. That's so true that <clears throat> data uh, can be intimidating. I, I think like of like my daughter who's who's two, like sometimes when she hands me a crayon or something to draw something, I, I'm like scared. I'm like, ah, I don't want to draw anything. Um, and data is kind of the same way professionally where people can give you a lot of data and you instantly kind of freeze up and get overwhelmed. And so I think that's a good a good point you just made. And yes, I'm, I'm going to weave my two-year-old into this podcast multiple times, I'm sure. So I think that's important warning. Um, that, you, that you do that. <laughs> right. um, Louise, um, so I know you are from uh, Mexico, I believe Mexico City, and today you're joining us uh, from Boston. Can you tell us a little bit about yeah, your trajectory? What, what brought you to MIT and the work you're doing? Of course, Blake. Um, so yeah, I'm originally from Mexico City, born and raised. Um, 
I did my undergrad actually there uh, on biomedical engineering. So since I remember, I've always liked to work in healthcare. Um, you know, basically in the in the area of healthcare. But I always uh, was very engineering oriented in my thinking. I think and. And obviously that lets you different professional pathways, but for me it was biomedical engineering um, and doing a lot of uh, research and development on electrical engineering, computer science, mostly. I was in industry for a while uh, with different uh, international companies doing biomedical devices. And then I had the opportunity to come to the US to pursue a little bit of the American dream, at least academically. Um, at the Johns Hopkins University, where I pursued my master's uh, in engineering by innovation and design, in bioengineering innovation and design. So this is uh, this was a really interesting opportunity for me because uh, at Johns Hopkins there is a very, as you can imagine, as one of the leading institutions in in biotechnology development in the U.S. Uh, and also just clinical care, uh, there is a very you know, strong focus on trying to create top-notch technology that can really impact people's lives. And through that program, I was able to enter into the field of entrepreneurship in biotechnology and medical devices. I started a couple of different companies, uh, so some of which were actually successful, uh, others that were completely disaster. Uh, but all good experience. Uh, with that, I, I ended up going back to Mexico to build uh, the first company at the time, at least, uh, that was focused completely 100% on helping uh, designers and researchers in the Latin American region to pursue their dreams in biodesign and bioengineering by basically providing services for design and development to anyone who had a really good idea to bring those ideas from napkin paper like drawing a sketch all the way to regulatory approval. Uh, that, that company, uh, the name is Alander Medical, was a fantastic opportunity and, and we ended up, um, I was a head of technology development and also venture creation and investment. Uh, for that, I ended up, um, we ended up producing uh, six different technology projects, two of which had exits and ended up being used in patients through regulatory approvals, uh, through the analogous um, institution to the FDA that exists in Mexico, which is called uh, the COFEPRIS. Um, after that, I had the, you know, the blessing and the opportunity to come back to the US just to pursue a little bit more academic endeavors. And for the last four years, I had been working on my PhD. I, I, I graduated just before, uh, like, you know, just last year. And, and it was during my PhD where I explored a variety of different topics at the cutting edge of, of bioengineering design, uh, including things that maybe your audience know or doesn't know, but one called synthetic biology, uh, which is the basically trying to bring engineering principles from electrical engineering, computer science to core biology and cell biology, tissue engineering, organs and chips, uh, and of course, artificial intelligence uh, for different applications. And so, of course, a lot of different things, very exciting stuff. What happens at MIT is, is incredible. And, you know, it's just a community that thrives. Uh, 
And because of that experience, I just decided that I wanted to focus on artificial intelligence and I wanted to do something very different on artificial intelligence in healthcare. And for the last uh, couple of months, we have been piloting these different uh, projects and initiatives. Uh, now, I'm a, as a staff and researcher at MIT to really bring these, these very unique concepts. And this idea of AI-enabled empathic medicine will be believed to be the first uh, you know, group and set of researchers that are trying to really, really meaningfully impact um, medicine through an empathic building approach and the use of artificial intelligence uh, without necessarily substituting the capacity of doctors and caregivers to give that type of service to their patients, but rather to augment them. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's pretty much my journey. Uh, you know, I uh, I live in Boston. I love Boston, but, you know, I love the, the entirety of the U.S. And, you know, I've, I've worked in a variety of different projects related with DARPA and, and, and the, uh, the military in the U.S. And it's just been an incredible experience with a lot of incredible people and resilience. Uh, I'm, I'm very grateful and, and, you know, happy to be here. Well, wow, that's a fast, fascinating path between, you know, all your startup experience uh, as well as institutions like Johns Hopkins and MIT. Um, I don't have authority to do this, but I, I want to offer you a job right now, like to work with, at the VHA Innovation Ecosystem. Thank um, you. So, <laughs> um, so Amanda, uh, please give us an introduction into my life, my story. My life, my story is an incredible practice in its simplicity. It's a project that aims to gather the whole of a person's story and put it in a digestible format in the medical record. So I have been connected with and aware of this project for a couple of maybe even two years now because I'm part of the whole health program and was inspired to try and figure out how do we bring that story, that kind of full experience, that three-dimensional view of a human being into a medical record so that when we're having a conversation with a veteran, we're thinking not only of the very specific things they're talking about as they're coming into a conversation with me, but also the context of who they are as a person and what they've been through. And the way that we've accomplished this in St. Louis is through the use of narrative medicine residents um, through Washington University. So another partnership actually. Um, and what's the, the challenging part of my life, my story is not actually gathering the story that part is an incredibly meaningful experience of sitting down with someone and and learning their life story. That part actually is the part that is the most uh, engaging, interesting part, the time consuming part, the part that really makes it difficult to scale my life, my story is the editing. So taking that deep, rich conversation that you had and packaging it And so that's my uh, experience with it here in St. Louis and also my awareness of it nationally um, is that it's just a great way to really connect with people by hearing more about who they are 
And, and I was very interested to figure out how could we uh, make this opportunity available to even more veterans. So I know what happened in here in St. Louis is we limited it to a few services because we just couldn't, we didn't have the bandwidth to do it for every single veteran, but we felt so strongly that it was something that we wanted. We just couldn't figure out how to do it. Awesome, thank you. Can you um, give an example of how the narratives have actually um, led to kind of a, an interaction between clinician and patient or some kind of change in the, the way they deliver care or approach the patient? I'll give you two examples. So one really powerful example was of a veteran who is on the palliative care service. He was in hospice, he was, he was passing away. And they collected this veteran's story. Um, and, and the whole care team sort of just warmed to the whole experience of making sure that every, every moment that the veteran had with us was a meaningful moment, a worthwhile moment. And, and then after the veteran died, the whole family had access to that story and then came back to the VA saying, we would have never had this story without this. And it's a way for us, in, in, in addition to the many personal memories we have, but this is a beautifully developed, uh, rich, yet short uh, story of my father, of my spouse, of my uncle, that allows us to remember him. And they said it was a gift to them as well. Um, and, and, and another story I'll tell you is actually from a veteran I personally worked with um, in a mindfulness class. And through reading, through reading through his story, it helped me to have insight into part of what he was bringing into the mindfulness group, which is that he was adjusting to the recent death of his wife, which wasn't a medical problem. But it was something that was part of his experience and what he was bringing into uh, the work that he was doing with me. And having that context, that depth, uh, changed the way that I interacted with him. So those are two, one personal example and, and one that I know from uh, a dear friend of mine in the palliative care service. Those are great examples and you can only imagine that kind of context has to influence you as a, as a clinician. And so that's, that's exciting to see. Um, Louise, um, now MIT, you mentioned this earlier, but MIT uh, has an initiative uh, for AI enabled empathic medicine. Can you tell us more about that and why it's so important? Yeah. Um, so it really, it really started through a process of need gathering uh, at MIT. So at MIT, we believe on solving the world's greatest problems. And, and, and for us, it was essential to really gather what the problems were. So through a very detailed structured process that we have at the Proto Ventures program, uh, which is part of the MIT Innovation Initiative, uh, currently sponsored also by another organization called the Jake Clinic, which is the epicenter of AI and healthcare in, 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 in MIT. Basically, we, we, we endeavored in this multi-month 
uh, effort to really understand what the problems in medicine were today and where AI could potentially, you know, hope to help. And, and something that was staggering, you know, apart from obvious problems today in terms of analysis of genetic content and, you know, diagnosis of new vaccines, like, you know, now, and, you know, apart from those obvious ones, uh, from that process, we came out with the notion that um, sometimes the best care in medicine doesn't come necessarily from the highest, most trained, most expensive physician that you can find in Harvard, but rather it comes from the doctor that just knows you. It it was incredible for us to see how people, uh, even like refugees from Syria, they were telling us like, you know what? If I were to choose between having my doctor, my pediatrician from Syria and my doctor right now that I have in Boston that probably has a degree from Harvard or something, I would totally choose that doctor from Syria because that doctor knows me. Like, I mean, I talk to that person, he or she knows that I have a dog, two daughters, that I just, you know, that I like my care this way and that way. And they just know me and know my dimensions. They, they understand, that person understands that I'm not a chart, that I'm not a bunch of numbers in a spreadsheet. And that was just destruct us because it, it, it's so true. It, it sometimes just it, it just takes you know someone to recognize that if you know that other person, that then the trust and the decisions and the communications that are going to happen around the healthcare of that person are just going to be way better, just because of that knowledge. And 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 you know recognizing that from a very sort of needs oriented perspective and also technology perspective we endeavor in our research to see what people have done out there uh, around this area. And that's precisely where we found the My Life, My Story program and the Make the Connection program. It was just amazing for us to see that, you know, people got it, that, that, that they knew that this was important, right? And, and this comes from a tradition, and I just want to mention this for your audience, that this comes from a tradition of something that Amanda alluded to before called narrative medicine, piloted by the likes of uh, uh, Rita Charan and others at Columbia and, and like other institutions, where you know extraordinary intuition about you know knowing the person's life story is just the start, the beginning of a relationship between physicians and patients that just make healthcare better. Um, so so that's 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 how we started. Uh, it started. It, you know, it's an initiative in the sense that we have literally brought together a team of misfits and engineers and people that just care about this to kind of like try to nail it down. We, you know, we are hustling and we are, you know, trying to hack and engineer our way through solving this problem, which is a very complex problem that happens all the way through, you know, the patient journey uh, for really enabling an experience that is empathic, uh, empathetic for, for the patient and, and, and the caregivers. And this is like a long journey. And, and, you know, it's an initiative in the sense that we're bringing together extraordinary people from all over the U.S. actually and the world and, and, and obviously MIT uh, with the VA and other clinical institutions to really try to create those solutions that just bring that reality to fruition in a way that is scalable. And so now talking about the My Life, My Story program and the Make the Connection, we believe this idea of patient life story understanding and summarization is just the tip of the iceberg. It's kind of like that very first low-hanging fruit that we can really attack 
and that's where we're focusing 100% of our uh, efforts, um, where the goal, as, as Amanda mentioned, is try to allow for an experience that is fruitful and engaging in, in an interview, you know, uh, you know where, where someone, a physician or a trained person or just a caregiver, a nurse can have an interview or just a talk or a chat with a patient. But then the idea is to be able to use artificial intelligence tool, and I'll describe more of those in a minute, to capture that information, that audio or video that gets produced during, during that interview, and basically transform it into a very digestible piece of content that can live in a standardized, in a standardized way, in this case, the electronic medical record, so that if a new caregiver is, you know, sees a certain patient that have never seen before, they, they, they are able automatically, just before they see that patient, to see this like two-minute read that basically abstracts the whole life story so that by the time that patient and caregiver connect for the first time, they at least know a little bit about each other, hopefully. Uh, and, 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 this, and this, we know through the My Life Maze Experience program, just makes all the difference. It, it really makes people get connected, feel, people feel heard, uh, which comes back to this notion of uh, patient-centric care, uh, which is something that, you know, as many of your audience would know, is, is, is basically where all healthcare is, is getting directed to and, uh, and is that for a really good reason. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Louise. Um, I think you just stole my next questions. <laughs> um, let me, let me kind of, let me, let me regroup here for a second. And I, I want to add on to and kind of riff a little bit off what Luis was saying about the importance of the relationship. So it's a long-standing piece of data <laughs> within psychology that between 40 and 60% of what works in psychology is not your specific therapeutic training, your adherence to a particular theoretical model or following a specific evidence-based approach, but it is the relationship built. And I think medicine is waking up and remembering something that has been true and that has been known for a long time. Luis talked about this. He wants to go to his doctor, his Syrian doctor, (laughs) because that's who knows him. Medicine has been for many years, there's plenty of room for improvement, but one of the core cornerstones of medicine was people coming into your home, seeing your context, seeing your environment. Um, And so I think that that's an important part of that relationship is that context. And this is part of what's so compelling about this work is that it allows for us to focus on the connection and the relationship. So what I'm saying is, Luis mentioned this, the importance of that first interaction you're having not be all from the beginning, that they already have some context. Right. Help me understand how exactly... uh, 
you're using my life, my story and make the connection uh, and combining it with this AI enabled empathic uh, medicine initiative and actually making improvements to, um, to those practices. So maybe I can uh, elaborate on that and, and Amanda, you can help me, but it, it's, it goes back to data as Amanda says, right? Uh, uh, reality is that MIT will have a lot of talent and a lot of you know, expertise on the development of uh, models in artificial intelligence to do a variety of different things. Uh, access to data, access to clinically relevant data and access to, to sort of, you know, that connection with the patient we, we don't have, right? And so how are we collaborating with the My Life Mystery program and make the connection to make something like this happen? Well, so what they are bringing to the, uh, to the table is basically that training data set of interviews and professionally redacted life stories that they have produced, which we hope through an uh, approved protocol to get access to, to feed into our algorithms, to learn the patterns that arise from the production of these stories so that we can train a system to do that same task automatically without the intervention of a human, which obviously we would love a human to, to do this potentially, but that's something that uh, Amanda knows very well and you know, that my life makes and make the connection folks know is something very time consuming. Just to give you a sense of the cost, both in time and money, that producing a single life story to put in an electronic medical record cost, uh, we have estimated it that it takes about eight hours of production time uh, on average. Uh, obviously, that the, 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 the uh, standard deviation is, is high, so some stories are really short. It may take a couple of hours, maybe two or three. Others potentially are much longer and more difficult. Uh, but let's say on average, six to eight hours to produce. Basically, that's after the one hour, 30 minutes, one hour that the interview actually took to produce a professionally written, you know, one sheet of paper that describes that person, hopefully in the voice of that patient. And, and, and the other aspect is um, the idea that uh, you want to potentially extract uh, clinically meaningful features or things that are useful for clinical care out of those stories. And so what we uh, are hoping to do with both my life, my story program and make the connection uh, who have slightly different types of content being created from both efforts, uh, just to make sure I, I, you know, for your audience, the Make the Connection program is a, it's a great initiative where they basically record an interview and create these videos of veterans that have dealt, struggled, and potentially succeeded dealing with uh, their stories of depression or PTSD or, you know, go, getting back to work, you know, basically those issues so that other veterans can feel that they are not alone. And what is amazing about that program is that, um, you know, the folks uh, at that group, Kobe South and Red Herrera, uh, as well as their team, have produced these videos that it, they are also labeled uh, in terms of the type of struggles that the pe people doing those videos and those recordings and those uh, you know uh, things uh, are talking about. So suddenly you have this data set or this uh, corpus of data that basically is narratives of people's struggles and lives and you know you know what they are. 
and and we have we we have professionally produced summaries that we can hope to emulate, right? Uh, uh, but also we have labels that we can hope to predict automatically without actually someone having to sit down for eight hours or or a clinician uh, sit down or you know the uh, mental health professional sitting down and kind of like analyze those stories, which obviously would be ideal to do, but just from a cost perspective, right? Just making a summary, we have quantified that it actually costs anywhere between $200 and $450 to produce it, like money, like money cost. So you can imagine that if you want to extend these type of initiatives to a population, you know, millions of people in the US or, you know, billions of people in the world, then it just becomes economically unfeasible to have a physician, trained physician or trained journalist or narrator, storyteller, basically doing this, right? You will need an army of people that just basically just doesn't exist. And Absolutely. See, yeah, it would and, be a huge, a huge group of people. It would, it would be un, untenable for sure. And so that's exactly what we are, are doing. And through the use, hopefully through the use of data, efficient and ethical use of the, that data, we are hoping to train systems that try to emulate that same thing that the, the My Life, My Story and the Make the Connection program had done, incredible outputs, to help them and others give that same positive impact to their patients. Awesome. Um, so I'm going to ask a question um, about our, our conference coming up and the theme, which is delivering more together. And so I'll, I'll ask the question. And um, I was hoping, you know, you can each kind of sound off a little bit on your answer. And so maybe Amanda, you know, you can start. And then once you wrap up your answer, uh, Louise, you can chime in. Um, so our, our theme of the Innovation Experience Conference uh, coming up in October uh, is delivering more together. Uh, can you all talk about how this collaboration between the Veterans Health Administration and MIT uh, is consistent with that theme? Absolutely. Uh, I, I'm going to follow up on what Luis was talking about um, in what this collaboration enables. So clearly we're working together <laughs> is that we can gather more veteran stories for my life, my story, so that, you know, it, after testing and making sure that this is in fact uh, compelling, you know, our initial results are pretty good, uh, that wouldn't it be amazing if every clinician who opens up a medical record, the first thing they see is the story of the person. Wouldn't it be amazing if every veteran who visits Make the Connection is able to find a story of a veteran who seems a lot like them? So we know that people are more likely to make a change, to improve their health, to improve their life, to get the help that they need. Uh, to take care of themselves. When they see people like them doing something that they feel is possible. So the more stories that we can gather for Make the Connection, 
the better. So that if I'm on that website and I see somebody who is also a female, also the same age, having similar struggles to me, and they're talking about how they've been able to find a pathway forward, that's much more likely to engage me in doing something different to help me. So there's this exponential impact that's possible through the use of this partnership, allowing clinicians to do the work that they find the most meaningful, which is having the conversation with a veteran, gathering that story, using the technology of AI to do the work that's incredibly time consuming, expensive, and for most clinicians, not the part that they're the most skilled at, and then providing that output to every clinician who's going to see that following, every veteran who visits Make the Connection. So through this partnership, we're able to take the work that's already happening in the VA with My Life, My Story, and Make the Connection, and expand the veterans who will have stories in My Life, My Story, and the veterans will be able to share their story through Make the Connection. So it's a, it's a powerful exponential uh, opportunity to grow the impact of both of those programs. Thanks, Amanda. Um, and the ways you can chime in whenever you feel like it. Perfect. So, I, I mean, she said it all. I think it's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know that's why I'm working with with, with you on all uh, you know all the VA Amanda because it's full of extraordinary extraordinary people. I I would only add that you know we we are really hoping that this collaboration is not it doesn't silo only with with the the groups that we're talking about today. We really would like to encourage your audience to reach out to us uh, if they have stories, if they have implemented the My Life, My Story program in their own institutions, because it turns out that I've just realized that there's a lot of people out there that are trying to emulate the My Life, My Story program. They have stories. And, and I just want to mention that, you know, what we want to pursue through this collaboration is to make this type of efforts transcend, transcend people, transcend you know, the internal knowledge that maybe a couple of writers may have, right? We want to create systems that can live on, you know, way more than a potential, you know, uh, you know, a couple of years that someone may be in that position doing those stories. We want to be able to not only scale, as, as Amanda is saying exponentially, but rather bring that knowledge all together into something that is just, much more powerful than the individuals that are inside, which I think it's, uh, you know, it, they, they are absolutely essential. Uh, but, but, you know, it, what happens if I die tomorrow, right? Uh, you know, it, it, all this knowledge of how to generate these stories or what happens if, you know, we want, this is so important. This is a fundamental for making medicine better in the future. That I think we have a social responsibility to make it long lasting. And so I just want to mention that we want to expand these collaborations. We want to expand the amount of funding and resources that we have to make this possible, both internally at the VA and outside. 
and 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 this is in the lines of making more together because I want I think we're already making more together and we will make much more together, but I want to also make much more than today and you know tomorrow with it together with more people in the VA system and and, and other institutions. Thanks, Louise. I, I love your quote that, uh, you know, the VA is, is full of extra, extraordinary people because um, truly that's been my experience uh, working at, at VA. Um, and it's one of the reasons I, I love to work here and, and work with some of the amazing innovators that we have within our system. Um, so I've been asking all of our, our podcast guests uh, a question and it always, the, uh, the answer always is interesting. And now I have a dog running down the stairs. Oh man. Um, okay. I've been asking all of our podcast guests uh, a question and the answer is always uh, very interesting and, and diverse. But the question I have for each of you is um, what is the most important trait to have to be an innovator in healthcare? So Amanda, perhaps you can start us off. I think it's really hard to choose one specific trait. I, I know that that's what people. You you have to choose one, Amanda. That's, I know that's it's absolutely essential, but I want to like I want to somehow circumvent your your specific request and say something different. Um, <laughs> I think the most important quality of the many important qualities is a willingness to be flexible when things don't happen exactly the way you expect them to. The nature of innovation is that it's new and there 100% every single time will be something that happens that feels like the end of the project. And without a flexible and open-minded mindset, it's easy to shut down. And so I think that that perspective of having an openness, a flexibility, and a willingness to pivot or adapt or find a window if the door is shut, that flexibility seems to me the most important quality. Wow, great answer, and and totally uh, unique from our other answers, which I'll share with you in a minute. Louise, oh, uh, with, wow. Louise, with your background, you're uh, I think ideally suited to to answer this this question. What do you think? I think the single most important quality that an innovator and also an entrepreneur should have is resilience of thought. Uh, and, and when I say resilience is, I mean, I think people in the world is enamored with this concept of the Eureka moment, like, oh, innovation just happens. Kind of like, you know, I was in the bathtub and, you know, Eureka, I, I discovered, you know, the concept of density, like just innovation doesn't happen that way. It's, it, it requires resilience. It, it requires exercise. It requires you to think deeply and carefully about things and then sometimes not that carefully but it's it's a it's a job it's it's a process and and 
and it takes a very particular type of person and a very particular type of mental resilience to push yourself to, um, you know, to, to commit to that struggle of finding that idea. And, and I would say to then commit to execute and make that idea a reality. So I think the concept of innovator and entrepreneur are slightly different because they require different skills, like unique skills. But I think what combine, like what connects them both successfully is the idea of resilience because it takes a while to get a really good idea, an, innovat- an innovative creative idea. It takes longer to make it happen and be real. And if you are resilient enough to go through that journey, and there is this, this, this quote from this poem that I love from uh, a, a poet by the last name of Snow. It says, uh, you know, I, I, took the, I took the path less taken and it has made all the difference. So that poem talks about the importance of the struggle and the journey. And that's literally what I believe is the most, the resilience to go through that journey, to choose your path all the way through is the single most important characteristic of an innovator and entrepreneur. Awesome. Thank you both for uh, giving us, giving us some insights there to what, um, what it takes to be an innovator or an entrepreneur. Uh, so um, Amanda, thank you. And Amanda and Louise, thank you so much for joining us for a great conversation uh, today. And we're so excited to see the amazing things that are going to come out of this work between VA and MIT. So thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening and be sure to register for the VHA Innovation Experience this October 27th through 29th. If you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, essentially any podcasting app known to phone, computer, tablet, or woman. For more stories on veteran and veteran benefits, check our website va.gov forward slash innovation dash ecosystem and follow the VA on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and RallyPoint. No matter the social media, you can always find us with a blue check mark. And as always, the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. And we'll see you right here next time. Thanks for listening.